0: Father God, I thank you for the Gospel of Luke. Thank you for really many, many weeks we've been in it, probably looked at over 50 sermons to this point with several breaks in between. And Father, we thank you for your inspired and errant word. Teach us through it, challenge us, we ask. May we be equipped, may we be encouraged by your word and transformed. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. My dad is one of the best money managers I have ever known. My mom a little less so. They say that opposites attract. My dad likes to save money. My mom likes to spend money, theory confirmed. If you are having a birthday or a Christmas, frankly, you want my mom to purchase something. My dad will make you a card. Actually, he won't, that costs money. He will send you an email. My mom will try and figure out exactly what you want she'll go and find it, she'll track it down, then she'll put it in a beautiful wrap package and she will send it to you. When it comes to getting a present, my mom is the one that engages in this for the couple. My dad, on the other hand, is all about finances. He believes that you ought to give the first fruits of your income to the kingdom. And so he has... Their portfolio, and he has God's portfolio, and he has better than tithed his income for all of his life, and he encouraged his kids to do so as well. My dad is an individual that he has tracked every penny, hear that word, it is annoying, every penny that he has ever made and ever spent. He knows where it went and why it went. My mom is not quite that way. My mom has no idea what is in the checkbook. As long as it functions, she is a happy camper. I'll tell you a story about my mom. It's dated, but it's a true story. In fact, it could still happen today. When my mom was about 20 years old, I think she was a junior in college at the time, her banker was my Uncle Bill, Great Uncle Bill was the banker, and my mom is not one to necessarily balance her checkbook. It doesn't make her top 10. It doesn't make her top 300. It's not on her list at all. And so she overdrew her account by a fair amount, and great-uncle Bill, seeing it, covered it. Then he sent my mom a nice note explaining to her that she had overdrawn the account. Naturally, my mom was horrified, embarrassed, sent a thank you note and enclosed a check from the overdrawn account (laughs) to pay for the overdrawn amount. If my mom were to do that today, not at all unrealistic, except my dad balances her checkbook. If she were to do that today and she were to hear about it, she would laugh. She would find it funny. My dad, a little less so. My dad has these three-ring binders. Before their move uh, a summer ago, he had hundreds and hundreds of three-ring binders. I managed to incinerate most of them at the local dump. And in these binders, he has charted every investment that he has made every day of his life. Most of them by hand. I don't even know how these are valuable, but he does. That's my dad. So think about my mom, very generous. Think about my dad, very generous. They're generous in different ways, one to the kingdom, one to family members, but they utilize what God has entrusted to them for the betterment of the kingdom and the betterment of others. I think that's exactly what today's text requires of you and of me. I want to pick up in Luke chapter 19. I want to read verses 11 to 27. Luke 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned... Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have exercise or authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you. You are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit. Or you reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in my bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, slaughter them before me. As you and I begin in the text, we read in verse 12 a very important phrase. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. In fact, this phrase and the two verses that follow it are phrases that Every Jew would have understood. They would have known what Jesus was talking about. Or at least they would have thought they knew what Jesus was talking about. Because Jesus is going to do a sleight of hand. These were code words. They were historically fraught words. They were words that would have brought a certain memory. To the mind of every Jew in Jerusalem. Who heard them. They would be words much like this. Suppose I were to say to you. If you were alive in 1963, what were you doing and thinking when President John F. Kennedy was shot? Or if you were alive in 1981, where were you when John Hinckley shot President Reagan? Or if you were alive in 1986, Where were you when the spaceship Challenger burst into flame 73 seconds after launch? My guess is if you were alive during one, two, or three of those events and you are old enough, you might be able to identify where you were and what you were thinking because those are historically fraught pieces of information in our society. They come with baggage, baggage that most of us hold on to. Well, that's exactly what verses 12, 13, and 14 are like. When Jesus says, there's a nobleman who uh, travels off to a far-off country in search of a kingdom, everyone who is a Jew in Jerusalem thought of 4 BC. They thought of the death of King Herod, a king that they hated, They thought about how Herod had divided all of his property among his three sons with Archelaus getting the largest segment of property. They thought of Archelaus who is given all this property but he is not given the title king because as we know Israel is under bondage, it's under control of Rome and the only one that can give the title king is a Caesar who happens to be Augustine at this point. And so what we have is Archelaus saying, I'm going to travel to a far off country. He's going to go to Rome in order to gain a kingdom, in order to gain the title king. And so he goes off. But as we read in the passage, he goes off thinking he's going alone, but some family members, historically we know it to be 70, 50 family members and 20 other leading individuals, Jews from Jerusalem and Samaria, they follow Archelaus to Rome. And they ask for an audience before Caesar Augustus. And they are granted an audience along with 8,000 expatriate Jews living in Rome. And they plead with the emperor not to make Archelaus a king. In fact, they declare that he is an evil man, a vile man. And as evidence, they use the Passover that is just gone before a few weeks in which Archelaus murdered 3,000 Jews and he tortured many others in order to prove that he was as powerful as his deceased father, King Herod. Well, the long and the short of it is, Caesar Augustus did not make him a king Instead, he gave him the title Athnark, and he made this statement, I will make you a king if you prove your just desert." He never proved his just desert. He was never made a king. He was a wannabe. He went down in history as a wannabe. He went down in history with this phrase, the nobleman who went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So when Jesus cites that phrase, all of his listeners immediately think that he's about to talk about Archelaus. In fact, the next few verses suggest it as does the end of the passage. But then Jesus does a slight of hand. He's getting them to think about an evil king, and he's about to present a good king. He's getting them to think about an evil kingdom. And he's about to present a good kingdom. He's getting them to think about how they will respond to an evil king in an evil kingdom. And then he wants us to think about how we respond to a good king in a godly kingdom. Because Jesus is the nobleman who goes away to establish a kingdom. What event is that talking about? It's talking about Acts 1.11, where Jesus ascended 40 days after his resurrection. He remained on earth for 40 days, and then he ascended on high. And you remember an angel speaks to the disciples who have their mouths wide open, and their eyes are big as they see Jesus ascend. And the angel said, do not expect anything different. As he ascends, so will he descend. He's coming back. The king is going to return. He's gone on a journey, and he's going to return. When is he going to return? I don't think it's talking about the rapture or the second coming, the parousia. That's when Jesus will come down at the shout of an archangel, the trumpet sound, and the dead in Christ will rise, First, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. At that moment, he will just come for a moment, and then we will have seven years of tribulation, that's the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, and then he will return victoriously for the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign, where he will physically, bodily reign here on earth. That is the time period that we're talking about and in between his ascension, Acts 1, 11, and his return, the millennial kingdom of Revelation 20, that period is where we live, and we are the ones receiving a mina each to use for the glory of God, and someday the king is going to come back, and he's going to ask us what we did with the mina that he entrusted to us. Now at this point if you're steeped in the New Testament, you might think, well, this sounds a lot like the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And yet there are many significant differences. The parable of the mina, everyone gets one mina. If you're a Christ follower, you get one, not two, you get one. In the parable of the talents, We have some five-talent gals, and they get five. We have some two-talent guys, they get two. We have some one-talent pastors, and they get one. Everybody gets a different amount of talents. In the parable of the minas, our ability plays no part in it. We all get the same, we get one. In the parable of the talents, the talent is the ability, it's the spiritual giftedness that God has entrusted to us. Some get five, some get two, some get one. In the parable of the mina, we all have the same responsibility for output. All of us are going to have the same accounting or reckoning for what we did with the mina that God entrusted to us. In the parable of the talents, while we all have a day of reckoning and we're all accountable, the accounting is based on whether we are five talent two talent or one talent individuals as Luke says in Luke 12:48 to whom much is given much more is expected the minor everybody gets the same and in the parable of the talents everyone gets different so the nobleman goes away he's been gone for 2000 years plus and someday he's going to return now in the parable of the talents the person with one talent appears to be an unbeliever, and he's cast into darkness. In the parable of the mina, the one who hides the mina, appears to be a servant, but a less faithful one. I think he is saved because he's placed his faith in Christ, but he will lack any extra rewards. So there's a lot of differences between the two parables. One likeness is this. Those who do not belong to the noblemen, those who do not belong to Jesus Christ, will suffer a crisis eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. With this number of caveats, let's now begin to apply the parable of the mina to us. First, this parable is about living faithfully. That's what the parable is. It's about living faithfully. It's about living on point. It's about living on mission. It's taking the next step in one's relationship with Jesus Christ. It's connect, grow, go. Connect to other Christ followers to build one another up. Grow in Christ through large group and small group and personal Bible study and prayer. And then go and share the gospel with others. It's about utilizing all that God has entrusted to us for his glory. It is faithful living. You might notice that the word mina is, well, undefined in the text. A mina is actually three months of wages, but I don't think that's exactly what the text is talking about. What is the mina that God is entrusted to each one of us. There's a fair amount of debate about that. Some say the mina is the gospel. The gospel is salvation by faith in Christ alone. The gospel is us understanding that we are needy we are in need of a savior that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, fully God, fully man, never sinned, laid down his life as a payment for sin, not his, ours. And by faith we receive him, what he did for us. His death, his burial, and resurrection is a payment of our confessed and the power of God's Spirit, our repentant of sin. Some say that's the minor. Well, there is only one gospel, and it doesn't matter whether You're from this tribe or that nation. There is only one gospel, and it doesn't matter what era you were born in. There's still only one gospel. I don't think the mina represents the gospel. That's just too narrow, and almost all scholars dismiss that as unlikely. Others have said that the mina refers to the spiritual giftedness that God has entrusted to us. That would make sense except it contradicts what we know about spiritual giftedness and it contradicts Scripture because not everyone has the same spiritual giftedness. We've all been around individuals who are incredibly spiritually gifted. At the moment in which a person comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, she or he is given one or more spiritual gifts. And then actually we read... In First Timothy, that through the laying on of hands, others receive gifts even after having come to Christ, maybe years later. So not everyone has one gift. Some have three, some have five. No one has all the gifts. We are in need of one another. We are interdependent, but some are more gifted than others. In fact, isn't that what the parable of the talents is all about? Some of you gals are five talents, some of you guys are two talents, and some of us are one talent. We all have different talents. So, a mina cannot be our spiritual giftedness. That contradicts the word of God. Personally, I think a mina represents our human life, it represents the life that God has entrusted to us here on earth with all the faculties and the facets of that life. And we are to spend our life in kingdom pursuits. We are to be on mission, on point. We are to be taking the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are to be asking ourselves... How can I be more like Christ tomorrow than I am today? More like Christ next week than this week? More like Christ next year than this year? What do I, what do you, what do we need to do as the next step in our walk with Jesus so that we are on point on mission? Who do we need to share the gospel with? What do we need to do in terms of augmenting our prayer life and our devotion life? How can we utilize what God has entrusted to us for kingdom purposes? I think that's our mina. Everyone has one mina. The mina is faithfulness, faithfulness in life. We are called to be faithful to the kingdom. So the first application from the parable is all about faithfulness. We've got one mind and one life to live here on earth. Are we living that life for God's glory and God's purpose? second is that we will be held accountable for how we live that life. This is not about salvation. This is about sanctification. Have we Prayed to receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior, there is neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, nor principalities or powers or forces of darkness, or anything in this created universe that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is secure. That's why Romans eight one says, "...there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." That's why Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. If we know Christ as Savior, our security in Christ is held firm. Yet while salvation is always held firm, extra rewards as we work out that salvation with fear and trembling, extra rewards as we work out the sanctification process that begins at the moment of conversion, justification, and ends at the moment of glorification when we go up to heaven, that entire process in between, we can earn extra rewards. It is mind-boggling. God owes us nothing. We are total debtors to God. God has given us everything. Every breath we breathe is a gift from God. The fact that he allowed his son, fully God, to take on human flesh, to go to the cross, to die as a payment of our sin, to rise again as the first fruit to resurrection, to offer salvation to us is so beyond what God needs to do. He doesn't need to do anything, and he continues to give and to give and to give. What a gracious God we serve. And then he tells us in this process of sanctification, using the one minor, the one earthly life that he has entrusted to us, as we live that life for his glory, he will give us extra eternal rewards. It is mind boggling, but it's all over scripture. Let me read a few passages. It's on the Bema judgment, the judgment seat of believers. Remember, no condemnation at the bema of judgment, but there are extra rewards for the faithful. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, things that do not destroy easily, or wood, hay, and straw, things that destroy very easily, each one's work will become manifest. That is, it will be revealed for the day, the day of the judgment seat for Christians, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one, each one of us, has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Something similar in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the Bema seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 12 Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. It's unbelievable. God who owes us absolutely nothing, yet for the faithfulness empowered by his spirit that he calls us to, he offers us extra eternal rewards, What a gracious God we serve. We need to live out the one earthly life, the mina that he has entrusted to us for his glory. Third, I love this, but if you notice that kingdom math is just a little out of control, it is. Here we have this one gal. She has one mina. She's, She's served well with the one mina. And what does Jesus do? He gives her 10 cities, To rule over, in fact, she's going to get leaven before the whole thing is done. Here we have this one guy who's been faithful with one minor. I take it that he has been growing in Christ. He's been praying. He has shared the gospel with others. Maybe he has taught others by his life or verbally. He has sacrificed himself in various ways on behalf of others. And God gives him five Cities. I love kingdom math. Kingdom math is pretty good, isn't it? We deserve nothing. We deserve how. We get heaven through faith in what Jesus has done for us. And then as we live out the one mind, the one earthly life that God has entrusted to us, he allows us to build up extra rewards. I love kingdom math. As I thought about this, I thought of Pastor Eric in Bidford, North Dakota, Pastor Eric was preaching one day, a small country church, and one of his parishioners was Mary. She was a senior saint, and not sure how she did it, but she bumped her head against the pew, and she was out cold. Not sleeping, she was out cold. Of course, they stopped the sermon, and the faithful began to pray. Someone called nine one one the EMTs came in, they strapped her to a gurney, they were about to take her out when Mary suddenly regained consciousness and she signaled for her adult daughter to come over and she whispered something to her adult daughter and of course everyone thought well she's giving her some final instructions because she probably thinks maybe she's going to die and then she left and everyone looked at the adult daughter who was a little embarrassed, she said well Mom told me her offering is in the purse and so make sure I put it in the plate. <laughs> she didn't want to miss an opportunity to advance the kingdom. Now today's text isn't really about money, but it might be. But it's really about utilizing the giftedness and the faithfulness that God has entrusted to us in the one mina. Remember my opening illustration of my mom and dad. They use the giftedness and the faithfulness to serve others and continue to serve others that way. That's what God is calling us to do. He's entrusted each of us with one mina, one life to live. And we shouldn't go through life casually. We should go through life purposefully, figuring out how we can advance the kingdom, how we can utilize the one mina, the one life he has entrusted us to. We need to be on point, on mission, on focus, helping ourselves and others to take the next step in the relationship to Jesus Christ. Connect, grow, go. Connect to other Christ followers to gain strength. Grow in Christ so that we are equipped and then go out into a world that is lost. One mina, one mina to live. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the parable of the mina, probably a lot less familiar to us than the parable of the talent. I thank you that there's similarities, but also dissimilarities that we might learn different things. Father, help us to utilize the giftedness, the talents from the parable of the talent well. And also to utilize the life, the mina that you have entrusted to us well. Father, uh, thank you for these gifts so undeserved given to us by you. And empower us by your spirit to live them as you would intend. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.